tabernacle as we progress through our series this fall called At the Altar. Last week, if you were with us, we met up with Moses and the people of Israel, and we remember that God had led them out of Egyptian slavery into freedom, and Moses was their God-appointed leader. They were now free, no more hard labor, no more bricks to be made without straw, no more abuse, no more bondage. The shackles had been broken and the people were free, free indeed. But freedom did not mean easy. For us as Christians, freedom in Christ does not mean easy. In fact, for the Israelites, freedom meant 40 years, 40 long years in the desert wilderness. At first, there was no water to drink, and God provided water. And there was no food to eat, but God provided quail in the evening for them to eat, meat in the evening. There was no bread. God provided manna from heaven, bread for their daily nourishment, and a double portion of manna to provide for them on the Sabbath when they were not to work, they were to rest. God provided freedom, but there were some hard lessons of trust for the people to learn in the wilderness. And the narrator tells us that on the third month, God instructed Moses to come and lead the people to the very foot of Mount Sinai to hear the words of God. And God spoke the words of what we now know as the Ten Commandments. God set forth to the people some very specific details about those commandments. People needed to know how to practice what God had said. This included how to treat other people, included ethical teachings, included guidelines on how to worship and some of the specific ways that they would worship with their festivals. After all of this, God called Moses up to the mountain, and Moses would remain there for 40 days and 40 nights. While on the mountain, God gave Moses more instruction. This time they were about something called the sanctuary, or the tabernacle. The tabernacle would be the portable tent that the Israelites would carry through the desert. When the cloud of God rested on the tabernacle, they would stay put, but when the cloud moved, then they would take up camp and they would move and they would follow it until the, the cloud of God rested yet again. It was the center of the community. It was the center of worship. Its primary use was the worship of the living God. The tabernacle was about 150 feet long and about 50 feet wide. So that would be about half the length of a football field. Can you imagine how it would be to put together the tabernacle and then take it down and go to a new camp and put it back together? Could you imagine how difficult that would have been? Could you imagine the people that were involved? The Levites were the ones who were responsible for that. I can't imagine. I remember when Melanie's family would rent the beach house every summer at Surfside, which is just below Myrtle Beach, not far from Garden City, Philip, where your family goes and perhaps some others of you. 
And after we checked into the beach house on that Saturday, because check-in is always on Saturday, we would unload all the bags from the car and get all the groceries that Melanie's mama had brought. And then Melanie's brother, Rick, and her dad, we called him Pop, and I, the three men, would get the tent and journey down to the beach and we would put together the tent. And it was horrible. It was no way to start a vacation. There's a little diagram of something like it. It was one of those tents that was in a big old bag, and it had white poles that were lettered A, B, C, D. I think someone from the IRS wrote the instructions because it had subparts. And we would put together the tent. It had those little plastic connectors, and then after you got it all done, it had the roof. And then it had the uh, screens that would be on the side, so it had walls. So when the children were wee little, they could go in there and not get sunburned. And then you would tie it down and drive stakes in the beach, you know. We would be there forever trying to get this tent put together. And then Melanie's mom would come down. And somehow, mysteriously, she was able to get it right. I, don't, I still don't understand how she could fix the tent. I have a hard time doing that kind of thing. I imagine that the Levites probably would have had me carry the water jug if I were living back then. But the first thing that they would do was put up the tabernacle when the Spirit rested. Well, the tabernacle was beautiful. From the outside, it was fairly simple looking, but from the inside, oh, it was beautiful. When you read the scriptures, you can see how beautiful it was. Before the Israelites were to build the tabernacle, they had to collect offerings for all of the things that comprised the tabernacle. They were to give what they had. And perhaps some of that could have come from the plunder from the Egyptians. As you know in scripture, the Egyptians were plundered and the people of Israel got some of those belongings. Or perhaps it was the talents of the craftsmen who would be involved in building the tabernacle. Well, in Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9, we hear how this started to unfold. The, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for, for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Not everybody was obligated to give. If your heart was prompted to give, then you could give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Goat hair. Ram skins dyed red and another type of durable leather. Acacia wood. Olive oil for the light. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the aphod and the breastpiece. These are for the priests. Then have them make a sanctuary or tabernacle, same thing, for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So not only did God tell Moses or instruct Moses to receive an offering, but then he gave him specific instructions on how it was all supposed to come together. Nothing was overlooked. God thought of every last detail. 
And the very fact that God decided to build or to have the people build a tabernacle showed that God was approachable, that God wanted to be near the people. They would not see God in the tabernacle, but they would experience the presence of God. Oh, yes, they would. Exodus 25 through 31 is the set of instructions that God gave Moses. And when finished, Moses came down from the mountain and gave the instructions to the people. And the actual building of the tabernacle came after the people gave their offerings. Exodus 36, if you follow along in verses 4 through 7, uh, tells us how the people gave, and they gave very generously. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more. Could you imagine how happy the stewardship committee was? Could you imagine if a church were going through a building project today, how it would be if we had to say, folks, just please stop. It's just overwhelming. Andy, could you just imagine? Andy's our team leader. Could you imagine what that would be like if we had to say, stop and restrain people? That's what happened here. People had to be restrained because they gave so much. What a wonderful spirit. People who complained in the desert, they were generous. They were restrained from bringing because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. So we have a set of instructions. We have follow through. We have giving so that the process could unfold and the project could be brought to completion. As I said earlier, worship was the primary goal of the tabernacle. It was the central function of the community of faith. And if you, if you read your Bible, you'll notice something very interesting. If you go back and read Genesis Chapter 1 and 2, which is the creation narrative, you'll see that we have two chapters in the Bible devoted to all of the creation of all that exists. Two chapters. And then when you start reading about the tabernacle, if you go to the book of Hebrews, there's, I think, two chapters there, and the rest of them are in the Old Testament. There are 50 chapters in the Bible devoted to the tabernacle. As I was studying for today, I was like, why? Why would God include a small amount of information in Genesis related to the creation of everything and then so much information about worship? And there may be some other thoughts on this, but my thoughts are this, that God, in creating all that exists, didn't need to give us all those details because God was the one doing the creating. But since we were the people... Human beings were the people who would be involved in the tabernacle. Well, they needed a lot of instructions. They would need to know specifically what to do because human beings are oft to get off track. So that was one really interesting point that I learned as I was studying for for today's message. 
Today, as part of our altar at the altar series, we want to understand in particular how the two altars operated in the tabernacle. To see that, it's helpful to have a brief overview of the tabernacle itself. The structure had two places. They were called places, the holy place and the most holy place. These were divided by a curtain or a veil. And then when you look at the whole outline of the tabernacle, there are three places. You have the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. The outer court, holy place, most holy place. There's a progression. Each of these places was used in worship, and they had furnishings within them. And I'll take, uh, if you take your sermon notes, I've done mine already, but if you look, there's a blank space in your sermon notes section, just a big rectangle, vertical rectangle. And I'm going to share with you some diagrams of the various elements of the tabernacle, and you can take notes and draw it as they appear on the screen. You can write in what it is if you would like. Down at the very bottom, take your pen or pencil and just draw a big thick mark around the middle, not all the way to, to across, but most, most of the way. It was 30 feet, I believe. That's the gate or the opening to the tabernacle. And then at the bottom, you can write the word east because the opening of the tabernacle always faced east. No matter where the people went, it was always to face east. And then the very first thing that you would see when you walked in was the altar of burnt offerings. And that's a square you'll write, and you'll see that on the screen. Each of the four corners had horns, which signified the power of God. And so the people would come to the tabernacle with their offerings and come into the gate, and their rece- the priest would receive their sacrifice and then would make that sacrifice on their behalf. The people would not go any farther than that. The priest would do the rest. The next instrument in the tabernacle, you draw a circle, is the basin. And that's where the priests would go and wash their hands and their feet as they continued along toward the holy place. And then the next thing you'll draw is a smaller rectangle inside the big rectangle. And that has a line in it too. That line is the veil. The first little section is the holy place, and then the second little section is the most holy place. All right, so you come in, altar of burnt offerings, basin, and then there's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place, and there's a veil that separates those two. Inside the holy place, on the right, you would see the table of bread. There were 12 loaves of bread made there that the, for the priests, round cakes. And on the left, there would be the menorah, which is the candlesticks, the candle that would be continually lighted. And then in the very front was the altar of incense, and that's the second altar we're talking about. So in the holy place, bread to the right, menorah to the left, and then the altar of incense. Then the veil. And then in the most holy place is the box called the Ark of the Covenant. And this is the box made of acacia woods covered with, with pure gold. And the Israelites would put poles through the rings 
and the, the Levites would carry the Ark of the Covenant, and the other Levites carry the rest of the tabernacle. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was uh, where the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. You would also have a jar of manna, which reminded how God provided for the people in the wilderness, and there would be Aaron's staff. And you can read in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, those items. I believe it's chapter 9 and verse 4. So the tabernacle was a place of worship where God would dwell and would meet His people. The tabernacle was a witness to the people of God, but also to the strangers who were around. Could you imagine what the Canaanites and the Amalekites and the Amorites thought of this strange tent being transported through the desert and then set up. I wonder how many opportunities the people of Israel had to tell those people about what God was up to. I can only imagine what that would have been like. The progression as one entered the tabernacle helps us to see somewhat of a spiritual journey. And we can translate that to our lives as Christians. Going through the gate, and the very first thing that happens is presenting an offering. And that's a substitutionary offering. Something had to give its life that forgiveness could take place. Blood had to be shed in order for forgiveness to take place. As Christian people, we understand that Jesus Christ shed blood was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He stepped in our place and paid the price for us. And then moving forward to the basin of the, the cleansing and the purification symbolically as the priests move forward. And then moving into the holy place, the bread. God provides bread, daily bread. Over on the left, the light, the light of the world as Jesus. And then the altar of incense, continually lighted, symbolizing the prayers that were given on behalf of people to God. And then in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing communion with God, the very presence of God. The difference, though, for us Back then was a person could only go so far. But we now do not have to go through a priest or somebody else because we have direct access to the Father through Jesus Christ. He became our priest, our mediator, once for all. The altar burnt offering, if you will look at chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, this, this is the descriptor. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns of the altar are of one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes, its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the rings so that they will be on two sides of the altar when it's carried. Everything was portable. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. And this altar is where the sacrifice was made, the burnt offering. Something had to die in order for forgiveness to take place. And the altar of incense, which is in the holy place, was lighted all the time. In chapter 30, we read, 
about that. Exodus chapter 30, verse 1 and following. Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It's to be square, a cubit long and a cubit wide, and two cubits high. It's horns of one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding, two on each side of the opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law before the atonement cover that is over the tablets of the covenant law where I will meet you. And then verse 7, Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight. So incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. This tells us of the unending prayers of the saints that are going on our behalf to God. Verse 9, do not offer on this altar anything, any other incense or burnt offering or grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. Aren't you glad that we don't have to go through all that again? Aren't you glad that we don't have to do all of that to have access to the Father? See, you say, Pastor Bob, why do we have to read all of that? Well, it was, it's important to us. It was important then. It's important now. But you and I do not have to go through anybody else in order to reach God. Jesus is our heavenly priest, our high priest. You see, Jesus changed everything. Over the time, the tabernacle would cease and the temple of God would replace it. People would come to the temple to meet God, to bring their sacrifices, to receive forgiveness, and to make their prayers known. And God saw over many centuries that this system of sacrifices was not what it was intended to be. People started to worship the temple itself and to place more importance on the sacrifices that they brought than they did on God. Religious leaders allowed abuses in worship to take place and took advantage of the poor and the outcast. And God came to a place where He would despise what their worship had become. Hear these words from Amos 5, 21 and following. These words of God. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, says the Lord. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with your noisy songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. So God decided to change everything. God came to us. John's Gospel in the first chapter, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. 
we have seen the, His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And the Greek word translated dwelt among us comes from the word, is the word skenos, which means tent or tabernacle. To dwell among us means that God sent His Son and tabernacled among us. No longer would people have to go to a place, whether a tent or a temple or a building, whatever it might be. No matter, no no longer would people have to go to a place to meet God because once and for all, God met them. God came to us as the person of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. God with us. Emmanuel. God tabernacled among us. Eugene Peterson's message version reads like this in John 1.14. The Word, Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus became an offering for us. No more burnt offerings over and over and over again brought to the gate of the tabernacle. Jesus later in the Gospel of John would say, I am the gate. We come through Him to the Father. Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17, and His prayers continue on this day, to this day for us. And then in Hebrews, we see these words, but when the Messiah arrived, high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, He bypassed the old tent and its trappings in this created world and went straight to heaven's tent, the true holy place once and for all. He also bypassed the sacrifices consisting of goats and calf blood, instead using His own blood as the price that set us free once and for all. And when Jesus cried His last words and gave up His Spirit as the high priest was getting ready to make the sacrifice there at the Passover, Jesus said, it is finished. And at that moment, the veil was torn. The rock, the earthquake, and the rocks split open. We were set free. The holy of holies that was once limited to the high priest per year has now become open and it is accessible to every man, woman, and child. As believer priests, that you and I would come boldly to the throne of grace to enjoy the presence of God every day as we find mercy and grace in our time of need. The veil at the entrance to the most holy place in the temple was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide and some scholars say about 6 inches thick. One Jewish historian says that it was so heavy that it would take 300 men to move it. It would be humanly impossible to tear it. Yet when the high priest was preparing to kill the Passover sacrifice, Jesus said, it is finished. And the veil was torn and access to God the Father was made available by Jesus Christ once for all by His shed blood. That is the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have to do a bunch of religious works to be saved. We don't have to keep a list of rules and regulations. Yes, they're important. But we don't have to keep a list of rules and regulations and check the boxes in order to to have eternal life. It's by grace that we are saved through faith, not by works. 
And we don't have to continually give offerings of sacrifice like they used to in the old days because Jesus stepped in and became our sin offering. And because he did that, we are free. But free is not easy. It comes at a price. By his stripes, we are healed. Would you pray with me today? Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we thank you for the lessons that we have learned today from Scripture and to see how we can apply them to our lives today. And that when we come to your altar, that you simply ask us to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. You have made access to you very easy. But it came with a price. All we have to do is receive it, God. If there is a, a person that's here today or more than one person here today who has not yet taken that step of faith to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, God, would you please speak into their heart deeply today. Nudge them to take that next step of faith publicly proclaiming Jesus as Lord and those next steps of baptism. God, this is your work. We are just instruments today helping to proclaim the gospel. I pray that people would respond, whether it's today or whether it's in the time ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our song today is Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated Unto Thee. I invite you to stand and sing as we gather together in our response time. It's number 277 in your hymnals, and the words will be on the screen. Let's stand together. I'll be at the front to receive you.